I'll be reading a scripture passage today from Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 6. This is a glorious prophecy of the Messianic coming. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 6. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. May God bless the reading of his word. It's hard to believe in something when everyone around you doesn't believe in that thing. Uh, Just put yourself in the shoes of any fan in one of those underdog stories. I'm sure you have your own favorite one. There's a lot of pressure on the fans of the underdog to give up their hope when they see the generally superior power or influence or skills of the, uh, the favored person or team. You, know, you can think of Friday Night Lights. The freshman QB unexpectedly gets promoted to be the starting QB, and no one thinks that he is going to be able to succeed except for his best friend. And so there's a lot of pressure on that best friend to maintain hope. And everyone else in the crowd just doesn't think that this guy can do it. Uh, This one person has to hang on to his belief, even though everyone around him doesn't believe. Uh, That is an incredibly hard thing to do, to hang on to belief when there's a lot of pressure of unbelief around you. But you know how the story goes. The, uh, The underdog comes out with the win. The true believer is vindicated while everyone else is just shocked into silence. And, and we love stories like this. We love a good underdog story, and we especially love thinking about ourselves as the true believer. We savor the idea that we would be that true believer in spite of all opposition. Even if the crowd turns against our beliefs, we would be faithful. We would be unwavering in our commitments. But when the rubber meets the road... I don't think any of us really wants to be in that situation. 
I don't think any of us relishes the actual experience of being a true believer when you're surrounded by unbelief. It is hard to be a believer in a world or culture of unbelief. And that is the challenge that's underlying our passage in John chapter 12 today. Our text this morning comes at a crucial point in John's gospel, the verses that we're going to be reading, uh, the second half of verse 36 all the way through the end of the chapter. It's the conclusion to the first half of John's book. Since chapter 1 of John's book, Jesus has been preparing the world to believe And especially throughout that ministry, he was especially focused on preparing Israel to believe. And now, after over two years of that ministry, Jesus is drawing his public ministry to a close, and he doesn't have that much to show for it. As we'll hear in our text today, the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry is actually pretty disappointing. Many of the Jewish people turn away from Jesus. They reject Jesus. And John, the Apostle John, who's writing this book, has to grapple with that reality. When John was writing later into the first century, around the the 80s or so, many of the Jewish people that he was writing to, they were aware of the history of Jesus and the Jews. They were aware that many of the people that had gone before had rejected Jesus. And so they had to ask this question, why should we believe in Jesus when our forefathers didn't? Why should we believe when they didn't? They again knew that Jesus had been rejected by their people and it was a major stumbling block for them. And we know that from some of the writings of that time. It was a major stumbling block. Unbelief in a culture tends to hinder your own personal belief. Again, there's a lot of pressure on the believer in that particular scenario. And I think that we probably ask many questions like that today. I think we ask ourselves, why should I believe when many of the people around me don't? In our world, many people reject Jesus. And when they reject Jesus, many of them will say that their rejection of Jesus is rational and it's ethical. And so it's natural for us to wonder when we see all this rejection taking place, what if they are right? What if we are wrong? It is hard to be a believer in a world or culture of unbelief, and so John helps us out. In our text today, the Apostle John confronts the problem of unbelief, and he does it so that our own personal belief wouldn't be hindered. So as we jump into our text today, we're going to ask three questions to explore this problem of unbelief. First, why is there unbelief? And then we'll ask, why should we know? Why do we need to know where unbelief comes from? And then third, we'll ask the ever important question, why should we believe? So with that in mind, brothers, sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles. If you're not there already, we're going to be reading in John chapter 12. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's found on page 899. I'll be picking up halfway through verse 36 and reading through the end of the chapter. Please hear now God's holy word. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for entering into the challenge of unbelief. We have confessed our own unbelief in song, in uh, in spoken, responsive reading. Now we confess it in prayer. And we ask that you would help us, even now, be to us a light shining in the darkness, that we would be able to see you, so that we wouldn't walk in the dark anymore. Bless us. Speak to us through your word. Let us hear your voice now, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. So why is there unbelief? Why is there unbelief? According to John, unbelief comes from three different places. First of all, unbelief comes from fear. Unbelief comes from fear. The people in our passage reject Jesus because they're afraid of scrutiny and they're afraid of suffering. Uh, Listen to verse 42 again. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. Now you might say, wait, wait a minute. It says that many did believe. Why are you saying that many didn't believe or that unbelief comes from fear? And it's true. The text says that many believed in him, but as we've seen throughout John's gospel, John uses the word believe in a pretty flexible way. We might think about chapter two. Chapter two says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He himself knew what was in man. That implies that their belief was only a partial belief in chapter two. Or in chapter eight, Jesus addresses the Jews who believed in him. But immediately, this group of Jews who believed in him responded with a very challenging question. They start to go after the things that Jesus is talking about. And by the end of that chapter, the entire crowd is ready to try and stone Jesus to death. And so clearly, their belief in Jesus at that point in time was not a full or a saving faith. 
It would be kind of like filling out a March Madness bracket, and you think you know who's going to win, but you're not sure. And because you're not sure, you sort of keep your March Madness bracket to yourself. You don't enter it into the office pool because you're afraid that you might lose. You're not convinced that your predictions are actually right. And what John is doing in this passage is prodding a type of private belief with a warning. He he says to us, your fear is keeping you from a saving faith. One scholar puts it like this, to follow Jesus is to go and tell your friends despite the social consequences. And that's what we see throughout John's gospel, right? As soon as people are captivated by Jesus and fully believe that he is the savior of the world, these individuals go and they tell other people about him. They go and get their friends, go get their family, and they bring people to Jesus. And yet the people in our text believed, and yet they hid themselves, they kept themselves back out of fear. John tells us that they loved the glory that came their way from the world rather than the glory that came their way or could come their way from God. And so that's a cautionary word for us. John says that keeping your faith a secret ultimately puts your faith at risk. You can imagine a lit candle, like some of these candles up here. If I were to put a a lid over one of these candles, the flame would flicker for a little while, and then eventually it would snuff out. John's saying the same thing happens to our faith when we keep it a secret. Unbelief comes from fear. Second, unbelief comes from sin. Unbelief comes from sin. In John's gospel... We've seen this a number of different times. Unbelief is the sin that John tries to target. We could think about John chapter 6. The one work that God requires of everyone is that they believe in Jesus. And as we've heard in our text from the scripture reading, Jesus is intimately connected with the Father. He does what God tells him to do. He speaks the words of God. He does the deeds of God. And so to reject Jesus is to reject God. And when you reject God, we call that sin. Unbelief comes about from sin. And verse 40 in our text confirms that. When we hear that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that's a passage from Isaiah chapter 6. And if we were to flip to Isaiah chapter 6, we would see that these words are quoted within the context of God's judgment. God is judging his people for their sin. Unbelief comes about because of sin. And sin in the life of a person has this cumulative effect. Resistance to Jesus builds over time. In John, if we were to look at chapter 1, the people are skeptical about Jesus at the beginning. But now, through chapter 12, their skepticism has built. And so now they're murderous. They're out to get him. They reject him so much now because their sin has built up with time. They are more hardened towards Jesus than they were at the beginning. They cannot believe in him because they have dug in their heels over time. Unbelief comes from sin. And that's another cautionary word for us. If you are skeptical about Jesus, you can make things worse for yourself by indulging that skepticism. And that's a logical thing, right? If you are on the fence about Christianity, 
But then you, you gorge yourself on YouTube videos of people who are critical of Christianity, it would be no surprise that you would be finding yourself growing away from the faith that you're kind of interested in. Or as Christians who have struggled profoundly with a particular sin, they often feel like in their moments of sin, their faith is quite weak. It's because sin is directly the opposite of faith. So here, the warning, don't indulge sin. Don't indulge sin. Don't be tempted towards sin by digging in your heels towards God. Don't reject him because unbelief comes from sin. Uh, But there's another layer that John adds to these things this morning, and we need to be honest about it. Unbelief comes from fear, like we've seen. Unbelief comes from sin. We also see that in the text. But then John tells us that unbelief also comes from God. Unbelief comes from God. Listen to verses 39 and 40. Therefore, that's kind of a concluding word. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. In the context of Isaiah chapter 6, God is describing Isaiah's ministry. And he says, what's going to happen to him? It's going to be a very hard ministry. You will preach, but they will not hear. Your ministry will result in them turning away from God even more because I will harden them, says the Lord. You'll preach and I will harden them and that's why they don't believe. And John tells us that that actually foreshadows Jesus' ministry. He will preach. He will do signs, but the people will reject Jesus because God has hardened them. God hardened these people so that they could not see the truth. God has a hand in unbelief. Now, in this passage, John doesn't give us a, a treatise on the doctrine of predestination. He, he doesn't give us an exhaustive theology of some of those things. He just simply assumes what the rest of the Bible teaches, which is that God is in charge of belief and unbelief, and at the same time, mysteriously, God respects human responsibility. It's very clear to me in this passage that God respects human responsibility. Just three verses before this quotation from Isaiah, Jesus cries out to the entire crowd to believe in him. And just three verses after this quotation from Isaiah, Jesus does the same thing. He cries out in a loud voice, telling everyone, calling everyone to believe in him. Jesus is inviting human responsibility in this particular way. Turn in faith and trust in Jesus. And yet, God has a hand in their rejection of him at the same time. Now we might ask, why would a loving God do that? You might ask yourself that. Why would God do this? Why would God harden people so that they would reject the Savior of the world? And this isn't the time for us to work out all of those questions that we might have. But let me invite you, if you have questions about that, if that is just something that kind of sticks in you and and is a stumbling point for you, please come and talk to me after the service. I would love to talk with you more about that. But here's what we can say for now. We can say two things about God's hardening of hearts. First of all, God hardens hearts because he judges sin. 
God hardens hearts because he judges sin. Both in Isaiah and in this passage, there is a judicial hardening that happens. It's an act of judgment. And Jesus lives out that act of judgment by going and hiding himself from the people. The people have vigorously, eagerly resisted him. And so he leaves, he turns from them. And that itself is an act of hardening. In this way, God's hardening of hearts is mysteriously tied to God's uh, respect for human responsibility. Why did God harden their hearts? Well, in part, it's because they asked for it. But God also hardens hearts to pave the way for salvation. God hardens hearts to pave the way for salvation. Remember Isaiah 53. John quotes that in verse 38. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. God loves the world. And so he sent Jesus to save the world, but Jesus had to die in order to save the world. Jesus' salvation is knit together with the people's rejection of him. The people reject Jesus, and that leads to his death. But that death also then opens up the way for their salvation. If we were to read in Acts, several passages in the beginning of Acts, the people who are involved in Jesus' crucifixion, many of them come to faith in Christ. Many of them are cut to the heart about their sin and they turn to him and, and receive forgiveness for their sins against him. They turn to him and are saved. Again, their rejection led to his death, which eventually led to their salvation. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 13. The Jews reject the gospel so that the gospel can go forth to the Gentiles. But then in Romans chapter 11, Paul tells us he foresees a day when the Jews will come back to Christ. Their hardening was not, was not forever. Their rejection of him would not last forever. God's hardening is mysteriously tied to human responsibility, but it's also mysteriously tied to God's sovereign and saving love. God has intentions to save humanity through Christ, and he will do it. And it's a hard teaching for us. I think it confounds our hearts, confounds our minds, but here's what it shows us about God. God is powerful, and God is merciful. He's powerful, and he's merciful. He hardens hearts out of judgment for sin, but in his hands, judgment frequently turns towards mercy. And so this answers our first question. Why is there unbelief? Unbelief comes from fear. Unbelief comes from sin. And unbelief comes from God. But why is that important? Why do we need to know where unbelief comes from? Because when you know where something comes from, you can react to it properly. Recently, I've started taking up cooking in cast iron skillets. And in my learning process of how to handle cast iron skillets, this is one of the things I learned. One of the ways that you season a cast iron skillet is by putting oil in it and 
turning the heat on until the oil starts to smoke. Now, if you didn't know that, and you came into my kitchen and you saw a smoking pan on the stove, you might freak out a little bit. You might shriek, there's a fire in the kitchen. You might try to deal with it. But if you know that I'm simply seasoning a cast iron pan, you're not going to be concerned. Again, when you know the, the reasons behind something, you can react to it properly. That is John's pastoral and apologetic goal in this passage. Put yourself into John's shoes. John is trying to convince a group of people to believe in Jesus, but they're hung up on one thing. That generation of Jewish people rejected Jesus. And so why do you think it might be important for John to tell them where unbelief comes from? It's because it'll help them have the courage to commit. When you know where unbelief comes from, you can have the courage to commit. John's audience might be afraid to follow Jesus. Like the people in our passage, they might be put out of the synagogue. They might lose jobs or friendships or family connections. And so in their fear, they might withhold themselves from Jesus. But John says, look at where it got them. Jesus hid from them. They lost access to all of the richness that Jesus is promising. That didn't turn out well for these people. And so don't miss out yourselves. When you know that unbelief comes from fear, you can, you can have courage. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid even if you suffer because you've learned from this passage that God is in control. God is sovereign. He hasn't lost control of the situation and he hasn't abandoned you. Knowing the causes of unbelief gives you courage. Also, knowing the causes of unbelief, knowing where unbelief comes from, gives you confidence in your faith. Being a believer in a culture of unbelief oftentimes makes you feel like you're foolish. The philosopher Charles Taylor calls this cross-pressure. When you bump up against someone else's beliefs or unbeliefs, It puts a lot of pressure on you. You start to question your own convictions. And Christians, as far back as the Roman Empire, had to struggle with this kind of cross-pressure. Even back then, Christians were asking stuff like, why am I not on board with the cultural uh, behaviors that are common around me? They don't actually seem that harmful. So am I just being kind of a, a stodgy or cranky person? Or why do I believe that a man named Jesus actually rose from the dead? Some pretty smart people disagree. Am I just dumb? Do I just not know anything about the world? When you know where unbelief comes from, it helps you to not doubt Christianity because there are spiritual reasons that people disagree with you. It is not because you're foolish. It's because they can't see it. And so you can lean into a world of unbelief with compassion, but also you can be confident in the face of surrounding unbelief. And finally, knowing where unbelief comes from helps you to pray. It helps you to pray. Consider the fact that God has a hand in unbelief. Because unbelief comes in part from God, you can actually trust that God can do something about it. If God had no control over belief or unbelief, there wouldn't be any reason to pray. You wouldn't be able to at least pray with hope, but God loves the world and God is not an innocent, helpless bystander. He is involved in the world. He is righteous and in control over belief and unbelief. And so you can pray with hope because God is powerful and God is merciful. And so if you're on the fence, you can pray 
And you can ask God to help you see. He will take the blinders off of your eyes. And if you have friends or family members who don't believe in Jesus, you can pray with hope because God is involved in their lives. You can pray. And so that's why knowing where unbelief comes from is helpful. It helps us react properly when we encounter the unbelief around us. It helps us have courage. It helps us have confidence. And it helps us to pray. And so now we know uh, from our exploration of the text, we know why there's unbelief. And we know why that information is relevant to us. But if we're seeking belief ourselves, we need a little bit more than that. We need some personal motivation. Knowing about belief or unbelief isn't enough to compel us to trust in Jesus. We now need to talk about belief. Again, it's helpful if we can answer the question, why didn't they believe? But now we need to ask the deeper, more personal question, why should I believe? Why should I believe? Why should any of us believe? And that is such a vital question for our skeptical age. We are constantly bombarded in our lives by empty promises. And because we are surrounded, bombarded by empty promises that tempt us to put our hope in them, we are constantly on the lookout for disappointment. We kind of expect to be let down at some point or another. Recently, I bought a new phone case, uh, just a, a, a case for my iPhone to help it from being shattered if I drop it on the ground, which happens a decent bit. And so I got an email after I had ordered this phone case saying, your, your order's on the way. Uh, the order had shipped. Now, here's what the email did not say. It didn't say, good news, your order's going to be there in three to four days. Here's what the email said to me. Get ready to be unlimited. Get ready to be unlimited. This was a phone case. They made it sound like I was going to get a jetpack or like a box full of superpowers or something, something that was actually going to change my life. This was a phone case. And the, again, the, the companies that we invest in, the, promise, the, the organizations that we're with, all of these corporations, they're, they're just kind of clamoring for our cash and for our attention. And so they give us these great and mighty promises and they always under-deliver. We're constantly disappointed by things breaking down in our lives. And so we should ask, why should I trust in Jesus? Here's why you should trust Jesus. It's because he's not like them. He's not like them. Jesus is true, and his promises are wonderful. Jesus is true. He really is who he says he is, and he shows us that. Listen to verse 37 again. He had done so many signs before them. Jesus healed people. He really turned water into wine. He turned a few handfuls of food into a feast for up to 20,000 people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. All of these things actually really happen, and they show us who Jesus is. He is true. He is powerful, but there's even more than that. Jesus went to the cross. He died in our place. He was buried in a tomb. But on the third day, he rose again just like he said he would. He is true. His word is true. Verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. The scriptures are trustworthy, friends. Christianity is trustworthy because Jesus is trustworthy. Everything that he says, everything that he does is true. Jesus is true. And his promises 
are wonderful. Jesus' promises are amazing. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. That's Jesus' glory. Jesus possesses God's glory. And then in verse 43, we hear that Jesus will give us God's glory. We will be able to share in it. Verse 44 and 45, Jesus cries out and says, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Or verses 49 and 50, I have not spoken on my authority. The Father has sent me and given me a commandment, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. Think about that. Ever since Humanity left the Garden of Eden. We have never been able to fully see or experience God's glory. Sin has always kept us away from the thing that we most deeply desire. Now just go out and ask anybody on the street. Or ask yourself even. What do you want for Christmas? If you were to get one thing for Christmas, if someone said, I can make any wish of yours come true, what would that one thing be? What's the one thing that you most want? And you, you go out and ask different people, and, and, and different people will say different things. Some would name some sort of holy grail possession, like some you know, multi-thousand dollar watch, or uh, some amazing toy, or a robot. Uh, Some people might name a relationship. Uh, I want all of my family to be together this Christmas. Some people might name some sort of glorious event that we all hope for, like world peace and a safe end to the pandemic. If you took all of those different desires, if you poke at them a little bit and you dig a little bit deeper, underneath you'll see that every single person in our world, everyone around here, everyone here today, even you, your deepest desire is God. You, you are craving God. Every purchase that you make this year for Christmas is a reflection of your deep down craving for God. We all want glory, peace, happiness, joy, community. We want love. And those are spiritual desires with a spiritual destination. They point us to God. If we are honest with ourselves and in our hearts, our ultimate goal, the one thing that you actually want in life, if we were to ask you, what do you really want? You would all say, let me see God. Let me get back into God's presence. Let me experience his glory. And Jesus gives you that. Jesus promises that you will have what you most want in him. Jesus will give you God. When you believe in Jesus, he tells us what he'll do. When you believe in Jesus, you will know God. You will see God. You will experience his life. You will have eternal life. You will experience his glory. Jesus is true. And his promises are wonderful. That is why you should believe. And if you're skeptical about Christianity, hear that good news and trust in Jesus. He is calling out to you today saying, believe in me. I will give you that thing that you most deeply desire. I will give you God. This week, take some time to really think about that. Consider Jesus' promises and then consider maybe your own resistance. What is holding you back? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it is some sort of entrenched sin in your life, but whatever it is, compare that 
to the glory of Jesus and the truth of Jesus and the glory of his promises. Don't miss out on eternal life. Don't miss out on Jesus. Trust in him. And if your faith is weak, if you feel like you are bombarded by a culture of unbelief, like you're that kind of one true believer in your context and everyone around you in life or work just doesn't agree with you and you feel like that is causing you to start doubting your faith, hear the good news about Christ and remember the joy of salvation. Jesus is true. You're not foolish for trusting in him. And his promises are wonderful. They are truly better than anything that this world can offer. If that is you this morning, take some time this week and reflect on the glories of salvation. Cherish Jesus and what he gives to you. Being a believer in a culture of unbelief is hard, but we have an amazing Savior You can trust him. He's not like the underdog in this story. He is the victorious champion. He will prevail and your faith will be vindicated and you'll receive everything that Jesus promised and eternal life, enjoying God's glory, seeing God face to face forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the light of Christ. And we thank you for your goodness and your majesty and your sovereignty. We bow before you trusting that your promises are good and that your sovereign actions in the life of humanity are good. You are righteous and true. And so again, we we bow before your will. We ask that you would give to us faith, uh, to our loved ones, uh, to our friends, to our neighbors, and, and to ourselves. Give us faith. Build up our faith. And when we are in times of doubt, Lord, confirm your wondrous promises to us. Help us to experience the glory that, God, you have for us. And help us to see your face through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.